And so I'm looking forward to that and also the opportunity this evening. For our scripture reading this morning, Matthew 14. And we're going to read verse 22, almost down through the end of the chapter. Matthew 14, verse 22, down through verse 33. Immediately, he, Christ, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. In the making of the classic black-and-white film made in 1962, To Kill a Mockingbird, the director didn't allow his actors to meet the other actors until they met first on screen. And so when the little girl, Scout Finch, if you're familiar with the story, she and her brother and her friend first come across this mysterious, strange man named Boo. That's what they called him, Boo Radley. And so when they first come across him, they are genuinely terrified. They literally hadn't met him before until there when they were in the acting scene. Their on-screen reaction is genuine terror. They misunderstand him and they run for their lives. A lot of times that's true for us. When, when we don't understand something, our first reaction to misunderstanding and not knowing what's going on is to be afraid. And so it's, it's like our, our, our perception is naturally messed up. It's naturally skewed. We don't have the whole picture. And so we immediately start to think negatively often, and our fear is heightened at the potential that could go wrong. What if this happens? And, and we start thinking about, okay, let's solve that what if question. If this does happen, then what will be our contingency financially, medically, occupationally? How am I going to solve this problem? But, but, but before we even figure out the answer to that what if and how we're going to account for it, another what if pops in our head, right? And it starts swirling around in our head. 
and we're actually thinking that we're in control of the situation, and we quickly realize with the more and more what-ifs, wait a minute, I am not in control here. But that's what feeds our worry, isn't it? We're not in control. In our passage this morning, here in Matthew 14, we are reminded of who actually is in control of the situation and who is not in control. Very simply, the theme of this passage is this, is that Christ is in complete control. Simple, but profound. And because Christ is in complete control, that's going to demand a threefold response from each of us. How will you, how will I respond to Christ's complete control? Let's uh, take a second and, and pray. We need to ask for God's help to understand and also to believe and apply. Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are in control. I pray that you would, by your spirit who breathed out the words that we have here before us this morning, that he would help us to understand and that he would um, help us to apply and help us to believe the truth. I pray that you would uh, find a God-honoring response in each of us this morning. We ask for your help in that, and we pray together in Christ's name. Amen. In this passage, Christ has told the disciples to get away after a big day of serving others. You saw that in verse 22. Immediately, Christ makes the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And and verse 21, just for a little context, tells us that they had just spent a whole day of strenuously serving others. Verse 21 says, And those who, were, who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So that's like half of TD Garden's worth of people, if you want to just picture that in your head. The men were 5,000 plus the children plus the women. Maybe 10,000, maybe 20. There's a lot of people that they, the 12 of them, maybe a few other helpers, have given food to, okay, concessions to a lot of people. So they're understandably already exhausted. And so right away, verse 22, Christ sends them to get into the boat and go to the other side. They're next to the Sea of Galilee. I don't have a map for you, but the top tip of the Sea of Galilee, they're not probably crossing from the top to the bottom or from the widest part to the other part, but they're at the top. They're going to get in the boat and cross to the other side. Some some commentators think that Jesus was trying to quell what could have been the crowd trying to make him king. Actually, John's account in John chapter 6 notes that before they were going to make him king, he tried to dispel that. And so disciples get away. We don't want them to think like, you guys are the new governors in my kingdom. Let's usher in the kingdom. Jesus has done a miracle. Perhaps that, that's why he's trying to get them to leave. Verse 23, And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now you, you would think that Jesus would want to get some me time, some rest after all of that, right? And, and he probably did want to get some rest, but he wanted time with his father even more. This is what the text tells us that he needed to do. He want after the big day, rather than go right to sleep, he needs to talk to God, his father. When evening came, he was there alone, up in the mountain. 
Verse 24, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land. And a long way, maybe you have a footnote in your Bible. Um, the text actually reads many stadia, uh, which I think the, the, the footnote that you might have in your ESV says that it's 607 feet. Many of those. Two football fields minus the end zones. Two of those. Many of two football fields is away is how far they were. Um, John's account tells us specifically that it was about three to four miles that they had been rowing. The text here tells us that they were by this time a long way away and they were beaten by the waves for the wind was against them. The headwind strong enough to be beaten by the waves. And then in verse 25, in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Now what the fourth watch of the night, that's probably 3 a.m. to 6 p.m. That's actually a Roman way of doing it. Jewish would only have three watches in the night. The Roman way of accounting for that would be that, that last watch of the night, 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. And so maybe, maybe dawn is just starting to, to happen. Right, which would be uh, behind them, right, as they're rowing across to the western side of the side of the uh, sea there, and so maybe that's why it seems like to them that he's they can actually see him. Normally, if you're at night in a storm in the middle of nowhere, you're not going to see anything at all. But maybe it's because night uh, morning was starting to happen, and they think that it's a ghost coming to them across the water. The text says he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. And the word for terrified means terrified. Okay. It means that they were scared to death. Okay. So they, they were exhausted. They can't believe there's this person or personage coming to them. They cried out in fear and they were probably defeated. I mean, if you're it, normally this was this was an easy jaunt for them. They're strong fishermen. They know how to be on the sea. This isn't a really long, long distance. At most, it might have been eight miles at the widest part of the sea, but probably less than that. This was an easy thing. So, so to them, uh, often for us, when when something's we expect it to be easy and it's not, it seems emotionally even harder than it even really is. So they thought this is going to be easy. It's harder and harder than they thought. The short path across the lake that they were used to is being very difficult to cross. And then they encounter something that they're not expecting, and they can't make sense of it. But immediately, verse 27, because he knows they're going to be terrified, immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart. Be encouraged. Calm down. It is I. Do not be afraid. Who has been in control the entire time? Obviously, it is Christ. And so the first response that that demands from us is what Christ demands of the disciples here in verse 27. Take heart. Don't be afraid. Trust me. Number one, because Christ is in control, you must trust him. You might feel that you're exhausted from all of your effort. You're, you might be fearful of what you can't really make out. You can't make sense of it. You can't understand it. And you're fearful of it. And Jesus says, take heart. 
Do not be afraid. He's calling for your trust in him. And what's the basis of his demand that you take heart, that you don't be afraid? Specifically, he says, I'm in control. And, and specifically, we could say this, his previous working ought to reassure you in that trust. He demands your trust, but not without basis. He has worked in the disciples' past. He's, he's the one that's actually directed the disciples' steps up to this point. Sometimes we get in a predicament and it's our own sin. We've made some foolish decisions, wrong decisions, and we're in a bind, and we're the, really the creators of that. But here, it's not the disciples' sin that has gotten them into this situation. They hadn't tangled a tangled web, weaved a tangled web. Sometimes we need to admit that and confess the sin before we start trying to get out of it. We need to admit our sin. But here, that wasn't the case. Here, they were here not because they had disobeyed God, but specifically because they had obeyed him. Verse 22, who's the one that sent them out on the ocean, out on the Sea of Galilee? Who made them get into the boat? He made the disciples. Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him on uh, to the other side. And Jesus knew the storm that lay ahead of them. It is his specific control of the situation and their obedience to him that got them where they were. He knew the storm that lay before them. What's interesting, they had actually done this before. They've, they've been here before. They should be thinking deja vu. I want you to turn to Matthew 8. They've been on a, t- a storm-tossed sea before. Matthew 8, we'll look at a few verses of the last time they were in a storm. And Jesus was involved in it. Verse 23 of Matthew 8. And when they got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Verse 26. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds that even winds and sea obey him. It's interesting, this time, when Jesus calms a storm, they just say, wow, this is amazing. We didn't understand Jesus to be this powerful. They just have general amazement at who Jesus is. Apparently, there was more for them to learn that God didn't want them to learn any other way. Here in Matthew 14, we're going to try this again. Their, their takeaway wasn't complete going through this particular kind of a trial for them. God had demonstrated his perfect, all-wise, good, gracious plan for them. He had already taken them through a storm. And that's true for you, isn't it? Hasn't God already demonstrated his complete control in your life? His gracious working, his perfect plan his, his way of doing things that you couldn't have come up with and couldn't have done it better. Haven't you seen him at work in your past? His previous working ought to reassure you to continue to trust. In verse 27, 
as if his previous working wasn't enough for those disciples, verse 27, gives us a second specific reassurance from Christ. He says, take heart, it is I, I am with you. His presence reassures you. His presence reassures you. The disciples had seen his previous working. Wait, he is powerful. Wait, he is good. He's actually in control of the storm that I'm in again. And to boot, I have Jesus, right? Christ being with you is all that you need. And because of that, he says, you don't need to be afraid. That's the corollary to I am with you, Jesus says. And so because I am with you, I have the basis to tell you to stop being fearful, to stop being afraid. We see that with small children, right? So, you know, there's, there's the thunder and the lightning, and that can sometimes terrify the small child. Give them mom. Give, give them dad. And all of a sudden, they're, they're calm, right, most of the time. But what has changed in the situation? Has the storm stopped? No, the storm, the storm keeps on going. What has changed in the situation is the child knowing, oh, I, I have mom, I, I have dad, I have all that I needed. The fear subsides because they now have the one that they most trust. That ought to be enough for us. It's enough for the dear, exhausted believer to be reminded that he has Jesus that she has the presence of Christ. God is with you. That ought to be enough for us as God's children to remind us that we must trust the one who's in control. Secondly, the second response that we see in verses 28 to 31 is that of obedience. You must not only trust God because he's in control, but you must obey him. Verse 28, Peter... We would expect him to be the one that would pipe up and say something, right? Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Verse 29, he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Now, when you read this, you might think, Peter, are you like throwing out a fleece? Okay, I'm going to make a deal with you, God. If it is you, then like make this thing happen. Was, Was Peter really doubting? It doesn't seem like it, in this instance at least, because what Peter's asking is actually going to require greater risk. Like, okay, if this, is, if, if this really is you, then I'm going to do something even more risky. I'm going to try to jump out on the water and start walking to you. It's going to require even more trust. And Jesus didn't even have to answer in the way that he did. Jesus maybe would have said, okay, stop, Peter, <laughs> You're, you're doing it again. You're, you're, you're speaking before you're thinking. Don't just jump out of the boat into the water. He could have said, wait, just calm down. But he didn't. He actually responded and he said, go ahead and come. It's not throwing out a fleece and it's not just blind, unfounded faith on the part of Peter. Otherwise, we might have just expected Peter to just jump out of the boat. I don't need any, I don't need any reason. I'm just jumping. He's not jumping off a cliff and testing the Lord in that way. He talks to Jesus, and he made sure that he was following Christ's leadership before he did the thing that would even require faith of himself. Sometimes we think, oh, I'm just going to go out on faith, and it's against all biblical ration 
we're actually disobeying God in certain ways, and we're, we're claiming it's faith when really it's foolishness. Peter makes sure that this is what Christ wants him to do before he steps out in faith. And so there's a conscious decision. You could say it this way. You need to obey him consciously. Sometimes we are, in fact, in a difficulty because we have made a conscious decision to disobey. We're spiritually discouraged because we are consciously disobeying God in certain specific ways. When we're in the midst of a a difficulty, how would we make a conscious decision to obey God? What what does that look like? Number one, it's, it's submission to God's word. Submission to what God has already said. I don't need a sign before I make a decision. Signs are so subjective. You know, if you try to read the tea leaves in every situation, you are, in, you are on thin ice. You, you have no basis when God has already spoken. Those are subjective. They're often misleading. And sometimes the, the difficult thing is actually a test of our obedience, Well, God just opened all these doors. Well, maybe he was seeing if you'd be willing to trust him and not go through the doors and be willing to obey him and not do something that is going to be disobeying God in other ways. What has God already said? Peter did the hard thing once. He's obeying Christ and getting out of the boat. But he becomes afraid again, which is often what we find ourselves doing. We did the hard thing once. I trusted God. Now that that's over, the chances are we'll have another opportunity for our faith, our obedience to be tested. And that's what happened with Peter. Verse 30, when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Peter stopped relying on Christ and things began to unravel. Earlier in the text, the the predicament the disciples were in, remember, because they were obeying what Christ said and go out and get on the water and go across the lake. Now the predicament that Peter's in is because he stopped following Christ. What is it for you? In, In what way have you been tempted to stop obeying Christ? Maybe it's your faithfulness in the word. Maybe, maybe you've been preoccupied with something else or someone else and you've allowed it to, to shove off clear-minded biblical obedience. You're rationalizing things that once you never would have rationalized. In what ways are you tempted to stop obeying Christ? Which, in effect, is actually the same thing as stopping trusting Christ. Sometimes obedience requires trust. How are people going to take this? What's going to happen if I go ahead and make this hard decision that I know God wants me to? There's trust tied in with that obedience. Peter demonstrates for us our need to continue to obey him. We've got to con- make the conscious decision to obey Christ, but then secondly, make the continual decision to be obeying Christ. If you haven't been continuing to obey God, what, what, what should you do? You should do what Peter does. What does Peter do? He cries out to Christ. He he says, Lord, save me. And and that was perhaps hard for Peter to do most of the time. He was a stubborn guy. But he wasn't so stubborn to try to get out of the predicament himself. If he would have held on to his guns and said, I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I'm going to figure this out. He would have sunk. 
Okay, there wouldn't be a Peter for the rest of your Bible if he would have tried to do that himself. He called out in complete, utter dependence to the one who was in control. What does Jesus do in response to that? He rescues him, but he also still goes ahead and points to Peter's heart problem in that lapse of faith, in that lapse of disobedience. Verse 31, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him. So he rescues him. He does help him in in his immediate physical need, but he doesn't avoid telling him what the problem was in his heart, what got him there. He says to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? The last time that Jesus calmed a storm, back in uh, chapter 8 of Matthew, he spoke to the group of disciples, and he said similar to that. He said, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? But this time it's more personal. He's talking just to Peter. In your time of trial and your temptation to get away from the faithfulness to obeying God in the small things, let Jesus speak to you in the way that he spoke to Peter. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Would you in humility agree with Jesus in his assessment of your faith, in his assessment of your obedience? You're right, God. I, I, I didn't really have a good reason to not obey you. I, I never had a real basis to stop trusting you, to stop obeying you. Christ is in complete control. That warrants our trust. It warrants our obedience. And then lastly, in verses 32 and 33, it demands our worship. It demands our worship. You must make the choice to worship Christ. What happens next in our text, in one sense, shouldn't have surprised the disciples because they had seen him do something like this before, but it did surprise them. Verse 32, when they, referring to Jesus and Peter, when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And as we saw earlier, the disciples had just seen Jesus calm a storm before. And that time, he actually used words. Uh, In Matthew 8, it says that Christ rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. This time, he stops the storm without words. Christ is demonstrating his power. And what did the disciples conclude based on Christ's demonstration of his power? Last time, their conclusion, like we noted, was a little bit more general. Wow, what kind of person could do this? This time, their conclusion is a little bit more pointed. It's a little stronger. It's a little bit more accurate. And those in the boat, verse 33, worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. Only, Only Jesus, only God could actually previously rebuke a storm and it stops. Only Jesus could, once he's done doing what he wants to do, get in the boat and it all goes back to calm again. His power demonstrated his deity. This time they are rightly concluding that this is God. They're worshiping. What, what does it mean to worship? What does it mean to do what the, the disciples did in verse 33? Worship is just, at its most basic, it's ascribing to someone what is accurate about them. And that's what they do in verse 33. The disciples ascribe to Jesus what is true about him. 
He is the Son of God. And so they, they have seen his power demonstrated that only God could do this. His power has demonstrated his deity. In terms of worship, a very simple illustration would be thinking about a, an amazing play that a basketball player makes. They do this amazing, this amazing thing on the court, and what's the right response of most people, even if you're on the opposing team? Maybe you're not going to clap, but you're going to admit that was amazing. That was a really good play. That was really smart. How does he do that? And so we're going to cheer for him. We're going to ascribe, you know, his worth to him by cheering for him. And we're glad that he can do such an amazing thing. We're, we're cheering for him. And we're, we're praising him, if you will. But what happens if that player never does that again? Oh, that, well, that was just a fluke. Okay. He had a little shining moment, but that was it. But what happens if they do that game in and game out, multiple times a game? Okay, they're not just a good basketball player that had a, a, a good day. They're a great basketball player, and they warrant you ascribing to them greatness in that sense. Matthew, in this gospel, he's doing that with Jesus. He's, if we were to run, if we were going to fly through the whole gospel of Matthew, something that Matthew repeats and draws our attention to is that Jesus has authority over all. More than 10 times throughout the book, he shows Jesus has authority over all. Another thing that he repeats that demonstrates his authority, or that, that's in a sense the corollary to the fact that he's over all, is the fact that Jesus deserves and receives worship. Thirteen times throughout the Gospel of Matthew, we see Jesus worshipped and actually accepting that worship. If you added up all the other three Gospels, uh, Mark, Luke, and John, all together, there's only 14 times of Jesus being worshipped and receiving that worship. So Matthew proportionally has a lot more of this. So there's, there's, there's something that Matthew is drawing our attention to. Jesus keeps on demonstrating his ability to control all things. He has authority over all. And because he keeps on showing that, he keeps on deserving it. He, de he deserves your worship. So are you in the habit of worshiping God as, the, as, as these disciples were learning to through this experience? On a daily basis, do you personally worship God? In his word, do you talk to him? Do you see what he says about life? Are you in that personal habit of worship? Are you on a, on a corporate, regular basis, like what we're doing today? Are you in the habit of worshiping regularly, together with God's people? Or do you do this on an all-the-time basis, when things happen in your life, the good stuff and the not-so-good stuff? Are you in the habit of ascribing to God what is true about him? In the hairy situation, in the hunky-dory situation, are you regularly looking to God, talking about God? As parents, that ought to be on our lips all the time, right? Deuteronomy 6, we're talking about him when we get up, when we're walking throughout the day, when we eat lunch, when we go to bed at night. That's just the normal habit of the believer. As parents, are we pointing all the situations in our lives, the littles, the bigs, everything, Back to God. Wow, look at the sunset that God gave us. Look at the rain that we have to endure all day today. We can't complain about the rain, though, because who's in control of the rain? God. We're all the time pointing back to God. Are you in the regular habit 
of God and his gaze? Are you looking at him? That's what it means to be godly, doesn't it? To have God in the picture all the time. To be worldly is to not have God in the picture all the time. To be godly is to be in the regular habit of worshiping. He's the one that you keep on pointing the attention back to because he's the one who is in complete and good control of all things. He's the one who is worthy of your worship. Boo Radley. Remember Boo? How many of you have read the book, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird? Or watched the movie? I'll put my hand up on that one. Boo Radley was someone that little scout misunderstood. Very much misunderstood. And because the children didn't know him very well, they were afraid of him. They were always sneaking up to his house to try to peer at him. And anytime he would evidence something, they weren't sure they'd run away from him. And eventually it comes to a head. And eventually they, they understand who he really is. They realize he's actually been looking out for them the entire time. He's been actually desiring their good. He's been trying to serve as a protector of theirs, of all things. But because they didn't know him, they didn't trust him. They were afraid of his working in their life. He ultimately ends up rescuing them from great harm. So let's think about that. Is part of the reason you're so afraid in your circumstance because you're not quite in a close relationship with the one who's in control of the searcher, of the situation, of the circumstance. First, do you even have a saving relationship with God? Do, of course you might be afraid of life if you don't know the one who's in control of all of life. Have you personally repented of your sin? That, uh, otherwise, your sin will separate you from God forever. Have you repented of your sin? Have you, have you trusted in Christ as your only hope? There, there are not multiple ways to God. Have you admitted that? Have you trusted in Christ's work on the cross as the only way for God's wrath to have been atoned for as in the person of Christ? Is that your only hope? Maybe you should be more afraid because you're relying on a relationship with God based on your kind of generally good, moral, upstanding life. You want the good life and the kind of moral life. You're relying on your goodness or your good feelings about God. That is not a biblical basis. That is not a firm foundation to stand on for standing with God. Do you have a biblical basis to say that you have a genuine relationship with God? Maybe you are in Christ. And you're thinking, well, that, you know, okay, that wasn't me. I, I, I know the fact. I, I'll get this right on the test. Is Christ in complete control or not? Yes, he is. Check. I, I know that. You know that in your head. He hasn't changed, and he's still in complete control of that situation that you're in. He hasn't changed at all. And that ought to, that ought to give assurance to you. You get that right on the test, but, but your worry and your attempts at controlling everything in your life are betraying the fact that you actually believe when the rubber meets the road, that Christ is in control. I profess belief in Christ, but I don't actually act like it. That's why I'm afraid all the time. That's why I'm nervous all the time. That's why I'm so controlling of all the things in my life. You're not giving into that control. You're not submitting to the control that Christ has. Perhaps you've been 
misunderstanding and because of that, mistrusting God and his control of your situation. Maybe you're not all that close to him right now. God, through even Peter's example, would encourage you to repent of your sin, to call out, to repent of that latent unbelief. I encourage you from this passage this morning, recommit yourself to trusting God. Recommit yourself to obeying God, even in those little things, the things that the Holy Spirit's bringing to mind. You know what? I need to be more faithful in this. I've been, I've been rationalizing this thing that I used to not even rationalize. I need to recommit myself to obeying God in that area. I need to recommit myself to making worship a regular habit, corporately, personally, all the time, day in and day out, talking about God, thinking about him. And that will, in a sense, demonstrate that you actually believe that Christ is in control. Let's ask God for his grace to respond rightly to his complete and good control in each of our lives.